1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we've been at the last few weeks, verses 18 through 20. I want to read that out loud here. And it says this. It'll also be up on the screen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your church. I thank you for that song that we just sang and that our eyes would be on you this morning. Father, with everything that we tend to heap on ourselves or turn the attention to self or our family or trials, I pray that even in that, those would guide us to your throne. That this morning it would be worship to lay that at your feet. That that would be our gift our offering of worship this morning to you. And so I just pray that you work through this service. I pray through, um, Father, just even this sermon. Father, the songs that we will sing, the communion that we take, that it would be glory to you and you alone. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we have opened up. We're a few weeks into 1 Timothy, and we'll close out chapter 1 today. And so, so far, we've seen through this letter to Timothy from Paul giving his younger brother a charge. And he sums it up in verse 3 through 5, which we read earlier a few weeks back, to say that this aim, this charge, is actually love. And Paul has already showed us that it's impossible to stay the course if, uh, if our heart's not in a good spot, if our conscience, he's already said that word already, if our faith and our conscience are not geared towards the Lord. That's a little bit of paraphrasing verse 5. But Paul goes on to give examples in our text today. And it, it's important. He's showing why it's absolutely necessary to address these guys that have risen up in the church, these false teachers, and the moral failure that comes with it. And if we don't address it, Paul has said already and through other letters and through the New Testament writers, that if we don't address this, then it breeds opportunity for further rebellion and disconnect from the Lord. And then he gave us that phrase last week that this is Jesus coming to save sinners. And then last week in, in that text that John spoke on, it's, it's, he's giving his own testimony. Paul says, here's what I was, and here's what the Lord has done. And God even used discipline in my own life to bring me to them. So discipline isn't a negative word in this sense. It's actually for the glory of the Lord. And so he addresses the arrogance and the wickedness in, in Saul's life, turns him into Paul, and through mercy, love, and examination of Paul's own heart and conscience, it leads to restoration with God. And then we know Paul's story from there. It's a beautiful thing that it doesn't just work out for Paul, but through the putting off of his sin and repenting and turning to God, Jesus is put on full display in Paul and then we see the church rise out of the New Testament. And then we get to our, our text today here in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And Paul really uses the same words again. So he continues in this charge, pointing our eyes back to the reminder in verses 3 through 5. And he says, the aim of our charge is love. And so I want us not to forget that the whole time we're in this book. 
if we're preaching on, against sin or false teachers, if we're encouraging the church, if we're rejoicing in the glory of God like we just sang, what is the aim in that? Our aim is love. I want that to be something that as we hear the next few weeks, the next few sermons, the things that you talk about in your small group, is the aim of what we're doing love? Is it for the point of restoration? Are we hopeful as we are faithful to this call? And if we are, then it ends well, is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Stay the course. And so discipline can be bathed in love. We, we see that in our homes, hopefully. I think most of you are great parents that I've seen. Uh, you, it is necessary to address when your kids are disobedient. And this is kind of the idea that Paul paints here. He doesn't run from discipline because it's hard, but he doubles down here in chapter 1 here with Timothy, and he uses this military tone. And Paul does this. A lot of the New Testament writers do. Jesus does as well. And I was reading this week, and the Christian theologian Locke, he makes this statement. If you want to be a good Christian teacher, you must be a good soldier and a good sailor too. And that was kind of a random line, but it caught me off guard because in our text today, that's what Paul is doing. He's not only using military terms to say, pay attention, this is serious, but he also goes to this nautical theme, and he uses these nautical and military expressions and illustrations, and it's an urgent tone. So even in his gentleness, and even towards his in this loving letter to a brother, he's being precise and urgent. And then if you've been with us the last few years, we've walked through First and Second Peter, we were back in Mark a few years back, and so these expressions I'll put some of them up on the screen. They don't go away. It's like a continual, sometimes we take it as a beatdown, but it's actually to our encouragement because we get off track. But the writers in the New Testament say, stay alert, be on guard, pay attention, ready yourselves. And then my mind always, military in the Bible, goes to Ephesians 6 where we're putting on that armor of God. And so Paul challenges the church in Ephesus to daily, minutely, always continue to pick up and put on the armor of God so that they're protected and ready. And so this is what he's doing in chapter 1 today. He is pushing Timothy's eyes to the same idea, to remind him that this is absolutely wartime, and if we're not paying attention, it doesn't go well. And he uses the phrase shipwreck is how we end our verses today. And then God's word says, if we're not putting on that armor, and if I just casually open the door, like it's not a war zone out there, if I'm not protected under that, if I'm not thinking about I'm raising war against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, that's one way he phrases it, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, if, if I'm not watchful, then Paul is warning young Timothy that the boat will go down quickly. We're, we're headed towards those rocks. And then if, the, if I can turn your attention, if you'll go over to Acts 19. Uh, I've used this before. It's something that comes up almost weekly when I'm talking to people because it's such a good picture of the Lord just totally taking over a city's heart, people's heart for him. In Acts 19, we get this really odd story, and a lot of you know it. It's the seven sons of Sceva, and I'm going to read that here. Because this is where the church in Ephesus begins. In verse 13 through 17, it says this. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so it's a crazy story. I've heard another pastor preach on this very humorously and saying that it's sometimes you don't know who wins a fight. Sometimes it's a tie. If you've ever watched MMA, or I've shared this story before, but usually you can kind of tell, you know, even if it's tie, well, that guy, it kind of goes to that guy because he got that good jab in there. But if you go into a fight with pants on and you leave a fight with none, you lost. It doesn't matter if you won. These guys got beat naked. And so it's this kind of humorous story, maybe not funny at the time, but looking back to say that they are so scared about what they see that they turn to the Lord and they repented of their dark lifestyles. And those that practice magic arts, if you continue to go down, these sorcerers of sorts, they just throw all their books, their magic books, into a pile and they burn it and they surrender their lives to the Lord. And so we have the birth of the church of Ephesus. And so out of this weird story, these sons of the high priest thought that they could rub shoulders with Paul and that would be enough. Like, hey, I kind of know that guy and he talks about Jesus and it looks kind of powerful, so I'm going to use that as my defense. But they're not realizing that evil, too, has great power. It's kind of what we see in this story going on. And so our, our hopes and our own logic and our own desires, they're, they're often not enough to overcome everything that we're going to walk through. And it actually takes the working of Jesus to do this. And so this is the great epiphany that the church in Ephesus sees. They realize that, and in this beautiful moment, they turn to the one true God who has the power to overcome. And then, if you want to turn over, I'm kind of throwing us around everywhere, but Revelation 2 We've got about three to four decades later, 30 to 40 years, that it's the same church, and Jesus comes to John in a revelation to give them a word. And he's saying, hey, what you're doing is, is great. A lot of the things that you have done is great. And I don't know what was going on there, but it, it made me look like your services are awesome, right? And the smoke machine's cool, I guess. I don't know. But what you're doing is you're affecting people, you, you have a heart for the people, and you're taking care of these things well, but he says this, this rebuke that he gives to the church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so I don't know along the way where that happened, but they started off strong, and they gave their life to the Lord, and we've got 30 to 40 years that they got comfortable in some way. We don't know the exact details, but what they did is they failed to recall their story. They began to rely too much on themselves. That's the rebuke. But what's the call? What's the action here? How are they to course correct this ship of sorts? 
the boat that they're on, if it's heading towards the rocks, Jesus tells John to the church, repent. That's it. He says, repent. And so it wasn't this really complicated thing that they had to do, but the command was to humble themselves, evaluate their motives, and repent from where they have fallen, is what that verse says. And so that's the question I kind of want to linger for today, is are we listening to the Spirit as He convicts and challenges, or have we started to let other things affect our actions? And that's something I want you to ask tomorrow, and next Sunday, and from here on out. Are we listening to the Spirit as He convicts and challenges? Are we, have we started to let other things lead our actions? Is God in the driver's seat or is something else dictating what we do? And so that's the same approach if we go back to our text. Paul is encouraging Timothy here, and it's encouragement to rehearse your testimony, remembering the goodness of the Lord. And so as you mess things up, which we will, simply repent of anything that has become a distraction or a distortion of what the Lord has for us. And in this remembering is what Paul is telling Timothy, in this remembering of who God is and what he has done, there is great power that God is giving us. In John Mark last week, he said the verse out of 1 Timothy 1, a few verses back, verse 15 says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. And so if you want to put something up on your walls, we've joked about putting things on coffee mugs, but this is the one that you cross-stitch and put up in your bathroom, I think, right? It's saying that we are not the awesome ones. We're the, we're the sick. We're the, we're the sinners in need of the Savior. We're the one that Jesus came for. And so that in itself should be a daily humbling reminder of our position for the Lord, which actually frees us up in much hope and dependence on the Lord. And then look back in verses 18 and 19 of our text today. 1 Timothy 1, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And so for those verses... Uh, as I did research, there's not a ton of history on these guys, uh, it, not even on the prophecies that he just spoke of. There's some references in some of the other books that he writes, uh, but we don't have a lot to go off of. And so what Paul does here, he's drawing Timothy back to remembrance. He, he uses these prophecies he references, and so he's stirring up his younger brother in the faith. And so this charge that he speaks to Timothy to wage the good warfare we, we often hear that phrase, you know, fight the good fight, right? And that gets used on everything, uh, it, not even in the church, everything outside the church as well. But that comes from chapter 6 of this book. It's the same expression. And, and Paul often, he, he says, fight the good fight. But then wasn't he just talking about false teachers? And as John referenced a few weeks ago, it's, it's like Paul goes here and then here. He goes wide in scope and then he goes back and he dials in. And he seemingly goes back and forth with no warning. But when he says this here, it is assumed that this charge I entrust to you, that I'm handing off to you, Timothy, 
is, is referencing not just what's going on in this moment, but these prophecies made about Timothy's life. So even as he's dialing in, he's not just saying, fight the good fight in the face of these false teachers, but he's encouraging him. He's going much larger scale as if to say, don't let this throw you off. He's, he's pointing him back to the call. The general reminder, Timothy, remember what the Lord showed you back in the day? that he's even confirmed in my own heart about you? And he gave him that charge in verses 3 through 5, not for specifics of just in this moment of how to deal, but all of the things going on as things pop up, as 2020 happened, right? As COVID continues to change our lives. For some of you, we're still dealing with Hurricane Harvey stuff, which is crazy. That was many, many years ago, and there's still homes in Kingwood that are gutted and people that have lost out. And so we're still dealing with those things. You might be dealing with an ugly affair that has popped its head up in your family's life, or addiction that rots parts of our life, or when someone does an all-out assault on the church, like we see in this text. He's, he's saying, remember where you came from. Remember what the Lord has not only confirmed in your head and heart, but also what he's called you to, Timothy. The aim of the call is not to just cast out these sinners from amongst us, right? Our heart isn't just to say, hey, you're evil, get out of here. It's not just to cast them out and then elevate our status so we are holier or more awesome or to remove these false teachers and hand them over to Satan that they may die. But he's saying, we do this, we address sin because the aim of the ministry the reason he has entrusted us sinners with a gospel that is more precious than diamonds, more costly than gold, the aim of this is love. Even in the discipline, even in the addressing of sin, the reason Jesus came was to save us, to address the issue, and to make a way. And when that happens, when we let him do work on our heart, he actually receives glory when he restores the church to himself. We see that in the life of Paul, and so Paul is drawing Timothy back into that story. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, it uh, gives us a, a more clear picture of that. In verse 20, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making a, his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So again, that phrasing from last week, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That, that was his goal, making his appeal through us so more sinners may experience the freedom that we get to walk in, to experience the relationships that you guys are enjoying right now. It's a beautiful thing. We want people to come in and feel that, to be freed of that, that they could be reconciled to their God. And so Paul says to Timothy, by these reminders, these prophecies about you, the things that the Lord showed you early on, your testimony, he revealed them, so remember and wage the good warfare. Let that be the incentive. Let the Lord be in the incentive for why we do what we do. And then I, as I'm looking at this text, this is something that has been on my heart. I haven't preached for a while, so one thing that has came up over the last six or seven weeks is I think... Uh, just being stagnant sometimes leads to a forgetfulness. 
I've seen that in a little bit of how we've wrestled, even in my own heart, even not preaching. I love preaching not because I'm up here. I think many of you know that. I struggle up here, but what I love doing is preparing because it draws my heart in every time. I get to see a new, uh, something new every time, and the Lord's teaching me, and constantly I see the way it affects my family when I'm in God's Word more, and so I kind of fear when I'm not preaching because I tend to draw back. And so I've, I've had to put myself more into God's word and be more disciplined because I want him to continue to work on our hearts. And so I'm going to maybe pull off an aside to, to encourage you for a second to say, I think it's good that you share your testimony. I think it's good that you rehearse it. Some of your small groups have asked you to give your testimony recently, and I think that's beautiful. I think some of you should tell your kids a little bit about what the Lord has done. I think that's a good, safe place to do it. You don't have to get up here. Uh, I would share it with your coworkers. Uh, I would try to find reasons to tell your mom and dad what's gone on the last 10 or 20 years in your life and just to work on that because what happens when we don't understand what God is doing or when we're not putting our eyes on that, when we get into a bad headspace, me personally, when I get irritated or angry or confused by circumstances, I think we all do this. We, we quickly throw out our testimonies or the understanding of the Lord. And it becomes this internal and inwardly focused thing that we forget what we've been saved from and what we have been called to. And then Scripture calls us new creations. I think we forget that, that the old man's gone. I don't have to go back to that every time. And so in a moment's notice, we default back to that old person and it's kind of scary, right? Am I alone? Yes? No? I think we all do that. Maybe it's just me. But when Paul says, this charge I entrust to you that I'm handing off, I am giving to you to hand off to other people, he's referencing prophecies made about something that Timothy knew very well. And so this gospel, this mysteriously glorious gift that is more than our minds can drink in is a beautiful thing to dwell on instead of just what's going on. And so that's what Paul is doing in that moment. But daily, we get overshadowed because we've sat at the dinner table for a few minutes and our kids asked us for water five times and we lost it, right? Or at work, that one coworker did that thing again that you didn't want him to do and you're out, I'm done. You're considering leaving the job. That's how quickly we do that. We're like, no, I'm going away from here. I don't care that I have to pay bills or feed four children, right? We're ready to get out of there. And so our trust of the Lord goes out the window very quickly when we forget our testimonies. That we were against God, and in his mercy, he sent a Savior and the working of his Holy Spirit, and he sent the church and so many other gifts that he gives to us so that our eyes would fall on his beauty, and let our hearts taste for the first time the eternal refreshment of salvation. Do you remember that? Do you remember what the Lord has done for you? And so if we don't proclaim this gospel to our neighbors, if we don't proclaim your own stories to the people around you, if you don't remind your kids where you came from and it didn't always used to be this way, we lose focus. And so that's my encouragement, just as your pastor, as your friend, to work on that. Work on remembering and rejoicing in the beauty of what the Lord is doing in this space. 
And so here, the purpose in Paul addressing the problem at hand isn't so that we're always looking at sin. These false prophets have risen against the church and all the drama relationally and spiritually that comes with that. He takes a moment quickly here to remind Timothy to remember what he's called to. Remember your testimony. And so it's not an aside. As confusing as Paul is, he's going this way and that way. He's purposeful in that to say we've got a a war to wage. And it starts with our testimonies, our faith in the Lord, and your conscience which I think is a very interesting thing to dial in on. It's, it's a fight. It's putting off of oneself and holding firm to the aim, and the aim or the charge, the faith Paul is referencing, all points to one place. It continues to point back to this one place, and it's the person in the Godhead. Our faith, our, our faith rests in him, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can trust in the process. That no matter what happens, regardless how the war feels and it goes and what lies ahead, that this thing ends well, right? And then it, as we look at this chapter, that's, I think, a theme through this chapter that is dominating is faith. And Paul dials in on it over and over, and he says, examine yourself. This is a, a self-conscious conscious moral evaluation to dive in there and let the Lord sift through what's going on. What leads to our actions? Where is our hope put in? The, and the things that capture our mind and our heart, he, he uses that analogy of the ship. It's going to guide where that ship's going to go, whether good or bad. And then he finally gets back to the specific or the current threat. So he peels back and he says, remember? And then he dials in on these guys. And he says, they have become their own judge. And along the way, somehow, we don't know, they stopped listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They stopped letting their eyes fall on Jesus Christ and be captivated by this gospel. They forgot their own testimonies. And so they're driving the boat, and they don't care about the signs. They're not paying attention that it says, slow down, wake zone, rocks ahead, right? And so they just keep going. And he says in verse 20, that they made a shipwreck of their faith. And, and the wording here is putting off, or they've pushed aside. Uh, he's saying that figuratively, saying they rejected a good conscience. And so it's, it's willful. That's the language here. Is they, they chose this intentionally to be disobedient to God's law. They knew what was right, and they said, I'm going to do this. And so the, it wasn't a trick And so I think that's maybe the harshness a little bit of what Paul sees here is saying, I don't have sympathy necessary because they're doing this willfully. I want to give them grace, but I also want to address it. That they stop caring and they stop paying attention to the gospel. And so a good soldier of the faith who examines their heart and their mind and their conscience makes steps towards God regardless of pain and difficulty. And so that's a lot of what we've experienced. Regardless of what's gone on, we are choosing obediently, even in the midst of struggle. And I've watched a lot of y'all do that. It's been painful to see some of y'all go through cancer diagnoses. But I've watched y'all do that well. Some of y'all have had marriage struggles, financial struggles. We've had things in our own houses. Y'all have seen our struggles. We've walked through miscarriages together. Over and over again, we've walked through floods over, that's a testimony of this city. That's something that has united us and it's pulled people into this community. 
But regardless of what's going on, we choose obedience. And so in, in this text, he addresses these men. And there's others, because he says they're among others, but he says two names, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And as I studied this, we could spend three days talking about these two guys, and really we have no information, which is really crazy. The scholars have done so much research on this, and there's so many possible outcomes of who Hymenaeus could be. But he's got such a weird name, we've kind of got that dialed in a little bit. He's referenced in another book. And Alexander, we have really no idea. But what we do know is that through some of these similar passages, they've landed in a similar spot. To say that here in 1 Timothy, that Hymenaeus is probably the same guy in 2 Timothy. He's ungodly in his actions with references to wickedness. He's seen as having youthful lust that he does not address. He's spreading lies about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says he needs to repent, and yet he continues not to. And so that's the context of Hymenaeus. And then we also have what verse 20 in our text says, he blasphemes. And so even with that limited storyline, there's enough to see why Paul says this guy's a problem. He rose up in the church, still uses the faith and gospel as a basis of works, maybe, yet is chronically unrepentive. He's a liar, and he's a distorter of God's truth and beauty. And he says, this is a shipwreck. This is not what the Lord has called us to. He's going against the very things of God. And then Alexander, we I have no idea. The, the name was a very common name used both in Roman and Jewish culture. And so we have five different references to an Alexander in God's word. But those could be five different guys. Probably some of them overlap, but pretty insufficient to really draw any more conclusions. So the text doesn't say more about Alexander, so I won't in this moment. But regardless, we have enough to say Paul's wording here is so strong about this shipwreck. It's a a visual that he wanted them to see. Not like, hey, they're kind of messing up. But it's going down. It's hit the rocks. And so it implies the, the original parts of these words imply a violent and deliberate rejection of love and a choosing willfully of, of being disobedient. And then earlier in this chapter, Paul would describe these men and other men as those who desired to be teachers of the law, but they strayed from the original intent of what God made the law for, and so they have perverted the intentions of the law and therefore have been judged unlawful and unfit. And so if we continue in that nautical theme that, we, that they have put off the evaluation of their own conscience, they haven't submitted to Christ in what they're doing, their, their ship is unstable, not controlled by the rudder of God's love and mercy. They're headed for disaster, and they've ran aground at this point. And the sad thing is it's not just them, but they've taken many with them. And then Paul says this interesting phrase, I have handed them over to Satan. And it's eerily similar to that language in Revelation to the church in Ephesus. You were doing good, you're doing lots of good things, but if you don't get this right, in Revelation he says, I'm going to remove my lampstand from you. I'm going to remove the protection of what I have built for you. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul addresses sin in a similar way of having to put people outside of the church because of some really grotesque and willful sexual sin. And he says, of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So if that doesn't make sense, uh, that's son with his mom. Paul continues, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so Paul very graciously but passionately is saying, don't overlook these things. I'm not just angry, but I'm mourning this. He's saying, pay attention to the signs that are ahead. Don't let life and this culture lull you to sleep, but stand up and mourn when people do things and engage in ways that do not honor the Lord, that degrade the beauty that the Lord has made. We've seen that. We saw that in people taking guns into school and doing those things. We've seen it in the way that our justice system at different times does, does terrible things. And often we're passive and watch it. And Paul's saying, look at these things and evaluate them. And in verse 3, he says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And if you skip down to verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 5, he ties it in today, today's text. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, hear this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so we have different ways of saying what this is. This is church discipline. You could say excommunication. But the point in putting these people outside of the church isn't to scoff and feel better about ourselves, right? It's not just to bring punishment, although our sin requires punishment, and often has lasting effects. But it's not just to be done with these guys and so make our lives easier. If we ran everybody out of the church that messed up, there would be no one in here. It'd be an empty building. And so that's not what Paul is saying. He says, don't allow this, but mourn it. We don't rejoice in one being handed over to Satan, but no, our souls are crushed. And probably these men had connections with them. Maybe at one point were trusted advisors. That's the sad thing and how you can pray for the leadership of this church. Pray protection over their hearts. Pray over mine. Pray for my wife and our family that God would do an amazing work and continue to protect us because if something were to happen in this position or in your homes that segregate us from each other, it's heartbreaking. We don't look forward to those conversations and yet recently we've had to do that with a few people because the sin got so willful. I'm choosing this. One of the conversations was you can either choose this other relationship that is disobedient or you can choose God's church and God. And they said, I choose this. And we said, okay. And it's heartbreaking. But you hand them over to Satan, not for destruction, but to, for them to get or to, for them to get what they deserve. That's not our hope, but so that they may be saved. That's what it says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The aim of our charge is love. It's grace. And so when he says, I handed them over to Satan, he doesn't go, ha ha, and wipe his hands, right? No, it's, it's, a, it's a low mourning. He says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn, in our text, he says, not to blaspheme, so that they can see when they go against the spirit and don't listen to the Lord, it's devastating to the church. It's hurtful. We're friends. 
We're not just church members and show up on Sunday like we're a country club. We love each other. We've taken meals. We've seen babies born. We've seen babies not born. We've gone through all of the tragedy and all the joys together. And so the point here is that we give them over so that they can see their sin, so that they may turn and repent and fall under the peace and the Holy Savior who is the only one who can save sinners. That's the aim every time. And so that's why he dresses it to lead to restoration and love. And so maybe kids, when mom and dad discipline you, it's for your good. Adults, when the Lord disciplines you, he says he disciplines those he loves. Be honored that you can hear him encouraging you, correcting you. And so Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're, they're looked at to be pretty exceptional cases. We don't always have to do this. This isn't a big deal. But in our text, that's what they're addressing. And so when Paul says, among whom were these two guys, there were more, and he found it fitting to make no mistake about what he was addressing, how it has caused hurt and division. And when I was reading that part in verse 20, I ran across this commentary or a comment from, I don't know who he is, Donald Guthrie, uh, one of the commentators on this book. Um, But he says this. It's a little wordy, but I'm a little wordy too. He says, however stringent the process, and he's talking about of handing them over to Satan, however painful or complicated it gets, the motives, the motive was mercy. And whenever church discipline has departed from this purpose of restoration, its harshness has proved to be a barrier to progress. So when he's saying when there's not mercy involved in that process, it actually makes the church look worse. It gets more complicated than the original complication. But this is no reason for dispensing with discipline entirely. It's a necessary point of the process. And he ends by saying, a failing which frequently characterizes our modern churches. In that text, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, often painful, often messy. But a soldier, a disciple of Jesus Christ, he follows Jesus wherever Jesus goes. He doesn't question. He goes. And yet we see the disciples question the whole time, right? But they follow Jesus, and Jesus always went to the heart, and the heart or the aim of the charge was love. And so we're in this process. The disciples are a good example of that. They failed often. They had to be rebuked often. We do that in our own homes and with our spouses. I get rebuked often uh, out of love and mercy, of course. Uh, But we're going to fail. And I've learned as pastor the last two years that a lot of y'all hate that word. You don't like the word failure, which is funny. But it's not something that y'all love. But that's why I shared the story from Acts 19. And I always do, and it always comes to mind, Revelation 2, that say, return to where you have fallen. Remember where you first fell, into the, fell in love with the Lord. And when we do fail, when our conscience becomes not so clean or clear, Or when lust, when depression, when anger, when anxiety, when grief becomes more intoxicating than our God, the call is repent. That's it. 
and we're going to mess up. Probably will as soon as you walk out in that parking lot or maybe a few hours later. But the Lord is calling us into faithfulness and out of darkness. And it's a process. It's sometimes painful, but joyful. Right before Patrick left on sabbatical, he wrote me a letter. And you know Patrick. He loves words, and he's such a soft, just tender guy. Uh, very feely that he is. Uh, but really, no, honestly, he wrote me a letter that was super kind, super encouraging, and um, humbling. And he ended it this way. He said, I will be praying for you while I am away. You will mess things up. Thank you. So repent and don't dwell on it. You're going to nail some things, so be thankful and don't dwell on those either. Lean on the people God has put around you. And then he quotes Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I, I think for probably most of us in this room, to some varying degrees, uh, we need to give ourselves some grace this morning. You will mess some things up, so repent and move on. And bring your conscience in line with the Lord. Let him examine you through prayer and his word, through church, through small group, through your own children, often. And don't marvel at how I just read this morning a text that said, we're dumb. All men are dumb. That's from God's word, not me. Don't marvel at how dumb we are. Just acknowledge it. We're going to mess things up. But marvel at your testimony. That's not about you. That's about the Lord. Let your eyes fall on that. So I'm going to encourage you again to pay attention to those things and continue to share this story that keeps you away from crashing on the rocks. When you're sharing that story, it's the very thing that Paul is telling Timothy is the thing that will guide your heart to the Lord so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so that's what I want to challenge you all today. It's a fight. Let's fight this together. Let's submit to each other out of submission to the Lord. Let our testimonies and our titles as ministers of reconciliation, let those be the tools, the weapons that we fight with in this war. And so as we watch and we wait and we're prayerful, my prayer is that we be a people that are constantly rejoicing so that when people come into this place, it can be a place of rest, a place of peace, knowing that Jesus, he's the one that came for sinners. It's not about us, but he does the work. Let's pray.